Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, can you even imagine what's going through their heads at this time? Now, granted, on every road trip, there's all sorts of conversations that happen in the back of the bus. There's plenty of time for you to share whatever's on your mind. But can you go back and even imagine what's going through the heads of this this little band of men that are now heading into enemy territory? With all that they've seen, the events of the last few chapters, coming into a town and and there's a man who's deaf and he's dumb, and Jesus takes his, his fingers and he puts it in the man's ears. Boom. He spits and touches his tongue and says, be opened. And sound comes rushing in and, and speech comes out of the man. They head into the next town. Some friends bring another man who is, who is blind. And Jesus takes him away from the crowd. And once again, he spits and he touches his eyes. And he says, can you see anything? It's the only partial miracle in the entire Bible. And the man says, oh, I I can see, but not too good. It's kind of fuzzy. The, The people look like trees. And so Jesus touches his eyes again, and he has his sight. In chapter after chapter after chapter of Jesus trying to teach people, especially his followers, I need to open your eyes and your ears. This is the type of savior you get. You don't get to choose which one you get. Open your eyes, open your ears. For anyone that has ears to hear, let them hear. And anyone that has eyes to see, let them understand. This is God. And in the midst of it, he opens the ears of those that are deaf, the eyes of those that can't see. And yet it's the religious folk that come to him and they want more. They demand more. It's the religious people that want a sign. They say, prove to us that you're the Son of God. Prove to us that you came down from heaven. And Jesus says, okay, watch this. You 12, get in the boat. And he starts to roll away. He says, there's your sign. Here's the type of God you get. He's not a guy that's going to set up a world dominion like you think. He's not going to make you better. He came to die. And Peter immediately tries to talk him out of it. And then he takes three of them up on a high mountain. And we saw this a couple weeks ago where where Jesus became as if the sun was shining out from him, like lightning coming out from him. And there appeared Moses and Elijah to these Jewish men, the greatest heroes of all time, the very cornerstone of the Old Testament, the giver of the law and one of the greatest prophets It's as if all history showed up in these two individuals just to say, now that you've announced your death, the entire history of the world has shown up just to say, it has always been and it always will be about you, Lord. And Peter blows the whole show. Boy, it's really good to hear. Can I set up three tents for you guys? 
And then God, the Father, shows up in a cloud and says, my son will not be part of anyone's show. My son will not be part of your great things. And my son will never be part of your life. He will gladly take all of your life, but he will not be part of your show. Show's over. And no sooner do they come down from the mountain than there's conflict in the valley. The disciples are arguing with the teachers of the law. Some man has brought a son who's demon-possessed. The disciples tried to cast out the demon, but they could not. And now Jesus comes and all eyes are on him. The father comes to him and says, it's my boy. He's got an evil spirit. It tries to throw him into the fire, into the water, to burn him, to kill him, to drown him. Can you imagine how much your first century life is wrapped up in, in fires and water when you live on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee? All of your cooking is done on an open fire, three meals a day, constantly heating the house in the cold months. You live next to the sea, water, where all your commerce, your transportation, your economy happens. You see what this father says is, we've been robbed. Have you ever been there? It seems like no sooner do we get, we get a picture of who Jesus is, God in the flesh, than we have a picture of the enemy. In John 10, Jesus says, the enemy comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. You have an enemy that comes to rob you. And the dad says, it seems like every part of our life has been robbed. Have you been there? We don't raise hands on questions like this, but I wonder how many of our marriages have been robbed. I don't think this is the marriage that I was supposed to have. I wonder how many of our families have been robbed. This isn't the relationship with, with my kids, my, my sons and my daughters that I was supposed to have. I wonder how many of us feel like medically or, or physically we've been robbed. This isn't the life I was supposed to live. We've been robbed. And a father is here that says, if you can do anything for us, can you help me? And Jesus said, if? I just put on a lightning show with Mo and Eli. Spectacular. I can do anything for those who believe. And I love the honesty of this father. He says, I believe. Can you help me? Because I don't believe very well. And Jesus basically says, you had me when you showed up with your boy. You had enough faith to bring him to me. I know you don't think I can do much with your life. I know you don't think that I can do much with your marriage, with your family, with your home. But you brought me your problem. And we saw last week that the boy is healed. And when they leave that place at the foot of the mountain, when they leave that place and start heading south, they go on a road trip avoiding the crowds. Now, can you imagine the conversations that are taking place as they go along? We're in Mark chapter 9, verse 30 today. And if you want to take your life notes, that half sheet of paper is passed out to you when, we, when you got here. We've got our scripture there and some fill in the blanks, some notes for you to take. We've been in Mark for um, like 30 weeks now, and it'll probably take us about 30 more Sundays to finish this gospel. If you didn't catch the first part, you can always go on and get podcasts. It's all online. If you don't know how to get that, I can tell you how. It's very simple how to get it. If you have a smartphone or if you have a computer, you can log online and get it as well. You could catch up over the summer. 
We've been preaching sequentially through the book of Mark. I plan on having chapter 9 finished by the end of this month, and then I'll pick back up with chapter 10 in October, Lord willing. So Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They left that place, and they passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. Circle that on your notes. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were. Because, why? He was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, on your notes there, I want you to draw an arrow out from that and put 8 colon 31. 831. You see, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus has made it very clear this is the plan. This is the second time that he's avoiding crowds. He's avoiding the miracles. This isn't for the crowd. This isn't for the towns. This is for his followers. It's for them to understand it. They have to understand it. So he avoids the highways. He avoids the crowds. He's trying to get away so that he can teach his disciples because these guys have to get this. For the second time now, he's mentioned, I'm not the type of God that you think. I'm not the type of God that you want. And he turns them away from the crowds so that his real followers can understand. And my bet is that even for most of us today, Jesus is not going to be the type of God that we want, that we would desire. You see, I want God to fix all my problems. I want God to make life better for me. I want God to make me healthy, wealthy, and wise. I want God to set me up as, as well something pretty cool because, you know what, I deserve that. Jesus isn't going to be the type of God that we want. And Jesus pulls them once again for the second time. He tells them, I didn't come to set up a world power. I didn't come to set up domination. I didn't come to kick Roman butt. I didn't come to, to give your nation freedom. I didn't come to, to set you up in ruling seats and power. I've come to die. I've come to sacrifice. I've come to serve. And this is so contrary to theirs and our understanding of who God was going to be. This is so countercultural, not just for us, but especially for these 12 Jewish men. You see, the entire Old Testament, it goes back to the Genesis, the book of beginnings, the first book in the Bible, chapter 12. God gives a promise to a guy named Abraham that says, if you follow me, I'll make a great nation out of you. And Abraham has a son, Isaac, and Isaac has a son, Jacob. He's also called Israel. And Israel has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. A great nation starts. And all the way back to the 12th page of the Bible, Genesis 12, God said, and out of this nation... I will bring a Savior who will bless all nations. And they've been waiting for this. If we're truthful, though, they kind of missed the all nations part of it. That's a whole other story. The Old Testament ends with the prophet Malachi. And they've been waiting. And after Malachi, there's 400 years of silence and yet anticipation. When is God going to send this Redeemer, this Savior, this Messiah? On that day, we're going to be set up. On that day, because we're children, we're his children, we're children of Abraham. Things are going to be amazing. And Jesus now takes them away from the crowd for the second, second time, and he tells them, I've got a different ending of the story than what you're thinking about. And you're not going to be a great follower. In fact, I would say that you won't be a follower at all until you understand the one that you're following. Look at how this hit, hits the disciples in verse 32. It says, but they did not 
understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. In fact, they were not only afraid to ask him about it, but they were having conversations on the back of the bus as they're driving down the road. I don't know who was driving. But they take this conversation in the back of the bus an entirely different direction. Not only are they afraid to ask what it means, Jesus coming to suffer and die, but they immediately look at themselves. And this is where we come into the story. If you've ever read the Bible and you're like, well, this, this doesn't have anything to, me, to do with me. If you've ever read the Bible and you say, oh, I just, I just can't relate to that. You should relate to this one. As soon as Jesus talks about his plan, what these guys do in the back of the bus, it tells us in verse 33, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they were arguing about who was greatest. What? So they pull into the driveway, they unpack all their gear, they're in the house, then Jesus says, hey, what was that argument about in the back of the bus? And they don't say a word. You see, they've already seen this in chapter 2. Remember back in chapter 2, I know it was a while ago, the house was so full of people, four guys came and they brought Paralyzed Pat, remember Paralyzed Pat? Because it was so full, they had to tear a hole in the roof and drop Paralyzed Pat down through, and Jesus healed him. That was in chapter 2. We studied that like 24 weeks ago, first Sunday of, a, of, of November. They tore this hole in the roof, and, and Jesus says to Pat, your sins are forgiven. And he looked at the religious leaders that were standing around there, and he said, why are you guys thinking of those things? And the religious leaders were like, whoa, you can do that? You know what we're thinking? Oh, you're good. And now he pulls it on the disciples. What were you guys arguing about on the back of the bus? You could hear a pin drop. They're so quiet. Well, let me share something deep for you here. It's in your life notes. It's, it's under where we fit in the story. Are you ready for this? It's a little bit complicated. It may be hard to understand. Try to make it, make it so you can. Followers follow a leader. I think if we get this and, and nothing else, we'll probably be okay. So what's the definition of a follower? Where you're following. You're following a leader. And so what's the definition of a leader? A leader is someone that has followers. And there's a lot of people who think that they're a leader, but when they stop and turn around, there's no one behind them. You th they would think, you know, if you're a leader, you stop and no one bumps into you. There, there's a problem there. Number two, you know you are a follower if you end up where the leader ends up. Jesus says, let me tell you where the leader is going. Let me tell you where I am going. I came to sacrifice. I have come to serve even to the point of death. Got it? Any questions? And they're like, well, I don't think I want to know the rest of that because if that's what our leader's about, and what does that say about where I'm supposed to go? You see, that's the furthest thing that, that I want from having Jesus in my life. I mean, you've come to bless us, haven't you? You've come to do all these other great things. And this is why the first time he said what his purpose was, he said, I've come. I'm going to hand myself over to the chief priests, the leaders of the law. They're going to persecute me. They're going to mock me. They're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. So I'm going to die on the cross, and three days later, I'm going to do Easter. And Peter, what does he do? He pulls Jesus aside and says, not, not, no, no, wait a minute. That's, that's not what you're about. I just said you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God we've been waiting for. That's not the God we want. And Jesus says, 
but that's the God that you have. No, 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 L let me tell you the type of God we want. And he's just told them the second time, and, and they're like, oh, that's not, what, that's not what we want to follow. You see, they're arguing in the back of the bus on who's number one through 11. You say, wait a minute, Walt, no, there's 12. No, 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 no. Jesus called Peter Satan. He calls you Satan, you're already number 12. They're arguing about who's going to be number one through 11. And Jesus said, I'm going to die on a cross for you. And they turned it into, well, how does this make me great? When does church finally pay off? You know how many years I've been coming? You know how many prayers I've put in? And what you find out is that cells multiply. Cancer grows. Tumors don't leave. Well, your spouse may, but tumors don't. Kids abandon you. Houses are taken. Partners stab you in the back. And we're in the back of the bus wondering, hey, when is God going to pay off? It's why he takes them away from the crowd, away from the show. You're followers, and you have to understand followers end up where the leader ends up. This is what I've come to do. Realizing that they don't get this, realizing that they, they need an object lesson, it says in verse 35, Jesus sat down. He called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last. Circle that word very. He didn't say, just say, he says the very last. He must be the very last and the servant of whom? Of all. Does it say the servant of God? No. Does it say the, the, the servant of the people you like? No. Does it say the servant of other Christians? No. It says the servant of what? I can't hear you. All. What does all mean? All. You must be the servant of all. Now, doesn't that stink? If anyone wants to be first, they must be very last, and they must be the servant of all? He could have just said they need to be towards the end. They need to kind of wait around and let someone else go first, and they'll pick up the line somewhere along there. But no, sitting down, he realizes this one's going to take some time. Sitting down, he realizes these, these guys are they're a bit dense. Well, I'm glad we're not like that. He says, he, he says they need an object lesson. Um, you guys got to get this. So, um, okay, it says, verse 36, he took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. It says Jesus takes a child. Now, now we, we too oftentimes, we get stuck looking at the Scripture, looking at what's happening in the Bible through our Western culture, through our Western lens. We need to understand something about the culture of this time. We, we see a little toddler, we think, oh, how cute it is, little you know, boy. I mean, I bring my grandkids here, and you guys, you guys all love my grandkids. I'm glad. Makes me feel good. But, you know, that's our Western culture speaking. If you go back and you understand a little bit about Greco-Roman Empire, where the first century children are to be seen and not heard. Many of us grew up that way, too, I know. I did. Children are less than your possessions in this culture especially female children. I'm sorry, that's simply the way it was in the first century. Male children were usually accepted by their father around the age of 11 or 12 once they were taught and trained by someone else, especially for the elite, those with money. Someone would raise your child up into that age, then they would introduce them to the father, and the father would start interacting with them and have something to do with them. See, Jesus takes the least in this social strata, the very least among them, and he says, you want to learn the heart of God? You serve someone like this. You serve someone that's not going to do anything for you. You serve someone that's not going to exalt you. You serve someone lower than you. And you know what a child is? A child usually just takes. 
A child very rarely says thanks. In fact, we have to remind them to say thank you. We try to teach them to say please and thank you. He says, you serve the people that you're going to get nothing from. Look for the least and you serve those people. And so what we need to understand, what what we've lost in the story is this. Number one, we have become the center of the universe. This goes all the way back to page three. Not page three in the book of Mark, but page three in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter one makes it clear. There was this, uh, this big bang that made everything that we know and we experience. All of science tells us about that. that our galaxies and solar systems are expanding away from some central point, some epicenter and, and origin where this bang happened. And I think most would agree on that. But where science in the Bible disagrees with what caused the big bang. Science tries to say it was some vast explosion that just randomly happened out of absolute nothingness, in a vacuum of absolute nothingness. That there's this explosion that created all of life and the galaxies and the universe as we see it today. Well, the Bible in verse 1 of, of the first chapter of Genesis says that that explosion was actually a voice. In the beginning, God spoke. God spoke. The voice of God created at some specific point in time. So the Bible pinpoints the Big Bang as the voice, the the word of God. Page two, he made male and female as the very pinnacle of that creation. You and I were meant to serve God, and we were meant to serve one another. You and I were meant to love God. We were meant to love one another. But then came page three. And just as sure as there's a God, there's an enemy. There's an adversary that came. And this adversary said, really? Did God really say that you have to obey and that you have to serve? You know, you could eat that fruit, and at the moment that you eat that fruit, you will be like God, knowing the difference of good between good and evil. You'll be your own God, and you can take over the steering wheel of your life. You can choose right and wrong. Why do you want to serve him the rest of your life? You can serve yourself. And so Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And from page 3 on, we have this brokenness, this fall from page 3 on. The rest of the Bible is simply a rescue mission of what God has done to invade planet Earth to get us, to buy us back, to redeem us. But see, from page 3 on, we have become the center of our own universe. We choose our own right and wrong. And i got to tell you, people, we love that, don't we? We choose what to do with our sexuality despite what God may say. We choose our own desires. We choose what we want to do with our own goals, with our own work, with our own job. We choose what people we like and what people we don't like. We choose what we do with our money that we've worked hard and earned. We get to be God of this life when we're the center of our own universe. What all this means is that the word servant has become a dirty word. What we were actually created for, what we were created to do, what you and I were hard, hardwired to be has actually become a dirty word. Because servant means I'm not God. Servant means I'm not applauded. Servant means I can't get the first and the second seat on the bus. Listen to me, serving is awesome. Serving's not just culturally acceptable, it's applauded in our culture today. People that serve and, and people that give and people that you hear about public service, you hear about servant, service, servant, oh, it's amazing. And servant leadership, oh, that's awesome. We love the word servant leadership. We love talking about servant leadership as long as servant is an adjective to my leadership. Don't make it a noun. Don't mean that I actually have to become a servant. We don't want to be seen as a servant. We don't want to be seen as the least in the room. And so Jesus sits down. 
And he says, this is going to go against your flesh. This is going to go against your nature. This is, this is going to get, go against who you think you are. Not only is your God contrary to the type of God that you want, he's asking you to be like him. That's contrary to the type of person that you want to be. We don't want to be anybody's servant. We want to be served. That's innate in us. We want to run our own show. Which means this. It means that serving has to be learned and strategic. Serving has to be learned and strategic. Jesus sits down and, and he has these, this incredible patience in, in chapters 8, 9, and 10 with these blockheads, which, which gives me hope because I'm, I'm the blockhead in the story now. Three times he's going to tell them, your God has come to suffer, to be persecuted, to be whipped, to be beaten, to be mocked, and to die for you. And three times it is met with Peter saying, no, that's not the God we want. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. The second time the disciples argue, when's it going to pay off for me? The third time James and John are going to come up in the next chapter, and they're going to say, hey, can we be numbers one and two? And their mom is supporting them in this. And every time Jesus gets to, here's the type of servant you follow as a God and what you as a follower need to be, they respond with, well, where's the payoff for me? When do I get exalted? When does that make my life greater? And so serving has to be learned. It has to be strategic. It's not natural. You cut me off on the freeway. You steal that parking spot that I've been sitting there waiting, you know, for two minutes to get. You pull in ahead of me. That's the natural state of all of us. Don't think you don't do it. And this is the whole idea that if I follow a God who came to serve, even to the point of death, what does that mean for me? I'd rather not ask questions because it, I, I know what the answer could be and I may be accountable for it. This is where we find ourselves in the story. And he sits down and he shows them, I don't want you just to serve. I want you to be the very last. And I want you to serve everybody. And this is going to go against your page three wiring. This is going to go against the fall of humanity. But I'm going to give you an example of what it's going to look like. And remember, I'm your leader. You can choose not to follow me. But then understand, you're choosing not to follow me. You see, why we need this story, why we need this story is because each of us are uniquely created for great works. Each of us are uniquely created for great works. Back to page one and page two. We were made to serve. We were made to do great things. We were made to have significance and impact. There are no accidents. There are no, not any incidental people on this earth. God created each person to have significance and impact. Psalm 139 says that he knit us in our mother's womb, that we are fearfully, every single one of us in our mother's womb are fearfully and wonderfully made. I love Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that says it is simply for grace that we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not of our own works. Otherwise, we'd be able to boast about it. We'd be able to brag about it. It's a gift of God. For we are God's handiwork. We're his handiwork created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do great works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, you are God's handiwork. You're his workmanship. The, the Greek word there is the word poema. You're God's poem. You're God's tangible expression of love to the world. You're created for greatness. You're created for significance. You're created for impact. Yes, quirky you, quirky little you, the way you were made is giving you a purpose in life. So this brings us to number two. Serving is where we, dis we discover our purpose 
in our calling. When we serve, we discover our purpose in our calling. It's also where we discover Jesus. Well, what, what, what is to be my purpose in my calling? I'm glad you asked. Purpose is what my job is today, what, I, what I'm doing today. It's, it's what's in front of me this week. But calling is that overall umbrella. It's the umbrella of my life. This is, this is what you're made for. This is what you're, you're about, the way God, God has shaped you. And this goes back again to page one and two. You were made, you were created, you were hardwired to serve God and to serve others. And not all of us are cookie cutter. You know, it's not like everybody's supposed to serve the same way. God's going to produce this amazing love and impact and significance through us. But since the choice on page three, we've made life about ourselves. We want to be served. We don't want to be a servant. Your wealth has a purpose. Your talents have a purpose. Your background, your, even your baggage, even the bad stuff that's happened to you serves a purpose. Your gifts has a pur- have a purpose. Back early on in our marriage, when Lou and I had been married about two years, we saw counsel with a Navy chaplain. And that Navy chaplain suggested that we separate. And we were separated for a number of months. But then God, in his grace and his mercy, brought us back together. And it was out of that experience that God led me when we got to Cuba in 1985 to start teaching a Sunday school class for couples using Navigator series um, God's designed for the family to try and help military couples, help Navy couples to, to succeed in marriage. And out of that teaching that class, God called me to ministry, called us to ministry. We're partners in ministry. Lou and I have been, always will be. God takes the, the bad stuff, even the bad. Trust me, that wasn't a fun time in our marriage back then, okay? But God takes that and he redeems it and he uses it for his glory and he uses it to bless other people. And he continues and continues to use it. But since the choice on page three, we've made, as I said, all about ourselves. You see, Jesus doesn't abolish ambition or riches. He just redefines them. He doesn't abolish ambition or riches. He just redefines them. Some will say, so you're telling me I'm I'm supposed to be a doormat. You're you're, you're telling me I'm, I'm supposed to be a pushover the rest of my life. Is that what you've heard? Our example is Jesus. He's the leader we follow. We've spent 30 weeks so far in this gospel, and we haven't come across a single time where Jesus is a doormat for people or he's a pushover. He's got the most unparalleled, unmitigated, unbridled strength of any leader in history. He's the most strategic leader in history. This is my leader. It's not about being a doormat. It isn't about being a pushover. This isn't about death to ambition because I'm an incredibly ambitious guy, okay? He just shifts and redefines that ambition. He takes who I already was and he redefines it and says, this is what I want you to do with your life. This is your calling. And this is Jesus saying, I want you to put yourself first. I want you to be number one in everything you do. Number one. In fact, every room you walk into, I want you to be the greatest and I want you to see yourself as the greatest. He just redefined what first and greatest means. He says, just don't operate the way of the world. Understand you play for a different team now. You're in a different kingdom now. By first, I want you to make yourself last. When you're last, you're going to be first. You make yourself a servant and watch what happens. By greatest, I mean you go after the least important and you serve and you watch what happens. Jesus doesn't want us to be rich. He wants us to be wildly rich. Not the way we think, though. He he wants you to store up riches. 
He says, I want you to have so much wealth that you need storehouses. It's just the storehouses aren't the First National Bank or Bank of America or PNC or any of those other. He goes, oh, just for my sake, don't keep it here on earth. Here, you would just use it for 60, 80, maybe 90 years. You're eternal, Jesus says. I want you to store up riches in heaven. Riches in heaven where, where rust can't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal, where moth doesn't corrupt. That you'll have for eternity. You see, Jesus doesn't abolish riches or greatness or ambition. He goes, I want you to be first. I want you to be greatest, and I want you to be the wealthiest person ever. I'm just going to redefine what that means. Back to page one and two. Because since page three, you've missed it. And this is where you find Jesus. We are never more Christ-like than when we are serving. But we are never more anti-Christ than when we are expecting to be served. Did you just call me the Antichrist, Walt? <laughs> if the shoe fits. We're never more outside the Spirit of God, anti the Spirit of God, than when we're expecting to be served. When I'm expecting to get my way, when I have to win the argument, I'm never more anti-Christ than in that moment. And I'm never closer to the Spirit of God than when I'm serving. You say, I've, I've, been, a, I've been a Christian for 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I, I just don't know. I've never felt the sense of the Holy Spirit. And I would ask, well, where do you serve? Are you serving? Maybe that's why you're not feeling the Spirit. Where do you serve in life? Well, I, I went on a mission trip once. Uh, you know, I helped clean up the, 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 the highway when my company was doing that, you know, adopt a highway program. And that's culturally awesome. Show me where you serve the people, the people that you live with, the people in your household, your neighbors, your community, your chapel, your church. Show me where you serve the spouse that doesn't deserve it, the neighbor that isn't all that nice to you. Show me service, and I'll show you where the Spirit of God is working. You see, the closer we press into Jesus, the more he gives us of his Spirit. When he knows that our, our heart and our, and our mind are, are, are aching to be taught of him, when he knows that we've come to serve and be like him, the Spirit shows up, and the Spirit empowers us for that service. But don't expect it if you're all about serving yourself. So how do you serve? What a story. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at sv. MIN.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day!